From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It's almost cliche by now to say we are a nation divided, living at a time of unprecedented partisanship. Our citizens irreparably split over social issues. Well, a new PBS series presented by GPB questions the premise that those fractures are unparalleled in America. Retro Report on PBS explores the origins of issues and ideas that continue to replay in our headlines and culture today. And it premieres tonight at 9 right here on GPB. Tonight on Retro, understanding the present by revealing the past. I'm Celeste Headley. And I'm Masood Olafani. This is Retro Report on PBS. They'll stun the world. This morning, we are joined by the two hosts of the program. Masood Alafani is a multimedia artist based here in Atlanta. Masood, welcome. Thank you. And a voice familiar to GPB listeners, an author, a journalist, TEDx phenom, and founding host of On Second Thoughts, Celeste Headley. Welcome. Such a pleasure to be on the show. Well, great to hear you. <laughs> Celeste, your voice is known to so many radio and podcast listeners as a host of this program, certainly, but also with The Takeaway, guest hosting NPR News Magazines. What is it like for you to be telling stories on this visual medium of TV? It kind of releases some of the pressure. <laughs> you know, when you're on radio, you need to be telling a story and painting a picture using only an audio signal, right? Um, so there is a certain benefit to be to have have pictures that help you with some of the storytelling. Um, and it's really great. The Retro Report team is so good at finding this incredible archival footage. Um, so you can hear, not just hear these voices of people like B.F. Skinner um, from history, the psychologist, but also see them. And it just makes such a, a different experience uh, from from just audio. Not better, not worse, but different. Yeah. Well, Masood, you're an artist, you're a writer and actor as well, but your visual art is very steeped in history. How does how does Retro Report fit in with your sense of the historic narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if Retro Report was looking for an artist uh, that kind of conceptually paired with their uh, idea of what the show would be about, I certainly uh, kind of fit that criteria. Um, you know, I, I look at, in, in my visual work, I look at the world through the lens uh, to the prism of historical uh, reference uh, in an attempt to try to collapse time and link our present moment to the past. And I think Retro Report does the same thing yeah. through the lens of the news. Um, so for me, it wasn't a stretch to kind of integrate that idea. It just seemed like a natural, perfect kind of fit. I mean, who knew, right? <laughs> and now you have a staff to gather all of those visuals for you. <laughs> yeah, I got a staff, all right. <laughs> well, you guys have covered so many stories in this first season. I'm just going to reel off artificial sure. intelligence, the recycling movement, the Pentagon Papers and press leaks, origins of landmark environmental policies. And so much of what is going on in American politics and culture right now strikes me as a fight over which stories or which part of stories get told. How do you and your team decide? You know, there's a pretty rigorous process that all, every story goes through. Number one, we are extremely aggressively nonpartisan, if I can use that phrase, meaning that we're not aiming to support or tear down any current argument. All we're trying to do is say, let's take, for example, artificial intelligence. And there's so many news headlines dealing with artificial intelligence, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or um, data gathering on behalf of Google. And we're going to say, wait, before you make up your mind today, let's walk you back to where this all started. And then we'll walk you forward through history 
till we get back to modern times and then you might have a totally different perspective. So when it comes to um, choosing stories, they not only have to have that kind of story behind them where we can really give context, but you know, frankly, they kind of have to be more modern because it's a TV show. So we have to have something to show on TV, meaning that you're not going to see a whole lot of stories from the 19th century, for example. <laughs> you couldn't get the footage? Yeah, there was no footage available. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned the science story, and there is there's a lot of discussion about we're not only living in a sort of divided political reality, but divided senses or perceptions of reality. And here, this is speaking to this, and in some level, journalist and writer Seth Manukin, he's talking about how one disproven support linking vaccination and autism in the 90s gave rise to vaccine resistance or hesitance today. There are almost two languages here. There's the language of science, and then there's English. And in the language of science, you have these signifiers, like, to the best of our knowledge, as far as we know, because you can't say anything with 100%. You can't prove a negative. And so when scientists speak in their language and the rest of us translate that into English, it sounds like they're saying something very different than they're saying. So, Celeste, you were talking about with artificial intelligence, we see the headlines, but we don't necessarily know the language. We don't know the meaning. What are, what are you doing at Retro Report to illuminate those kind of meanings that have been piled up one upon the other? We just see the term and we don't really know it. Yeah, so that's a really good clip that you've pulled. And the reason I say that is because we want to make sure everyone leaves Retro Report understanding Meaning that we use phrases like you can't prove a negative and we use them pretty freely, but I bet you there's some people who don't really understand what that means. I mean, what it means is that you can't prove that something doesn't exist doesn't exist, right? But there's many people who don't actually get what that means or how it relates to vaccines. So one of the things that Retro Report really does is make those connections and it makes them in a way that is plain spoken, as clear as possible. We don't have pundits on, so there's nobody on there just giving opinions. Uh, we trace it back to sources, the original sources. You don't just talk about um, conditioning with a psychologist. We talk about conditioning with B.F. Skinner, who did the very earliest empirical research into very variable rewards and the ways that software now manipulates our behavior. So that's one of the ways that Retro Report is not only trying to get around partisanship, but also be as clear as possible that, so that people really understand. Yeah. So the other thing I see here a lot is correcting the record, or let's say debunking stories that get repeated or reinforced year by year. I think of the murder of Kitty Genovese. You know, this is in Queens, 1964, a woman murdered on the street screaming, and, and the story was nobody responded. This was the origins of this idea of the bystander effect. What, what is it that you, what did you find in your investigation? Masood, you're, you're nodding, so I'm going to you. Yeah, I, you mean specifically the Kitty Genovese yeah. story? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, that's an interesting story because I think it, uh, really uh, is a perfect example of how a past moment really informs our present. And we see, you know, examples, uh, you know, in the media and we live in this age of cell phone recording. So everything is taking place in a sense in real time, right? We have recording of that. 
So, you know, th- this, this whole idea of people standing by the bystander effect and uh, this kind of indifference to other people's suffering and that kind of growing out of that experience um, and us being able to link that and show that, that, uh, you know, this, this uh, place that we're in where, you know, um, individuals can actually be in a space where they see somebody getting assaulted or getting hurt. And then uh, in some kind of way, justified in their own mind not to get involved. Uh, so I think looking at that and, and looking at it through the, through the lens of the Kitty Genovese story um, really gives us a sense of understanding of where this kind of uh, idea comes from, where, you know, how we strike these bargains within ourselves to, um, to turn a deaf ear to other people's suffering. I would add, you know, one of the great things that Retro Report does is make some unexpected connections. So all those things Masood is talking about, that, you know, they are connecting that back to all of the cyberbullying um, that goes on and the things that happen online in the digital world. We may think, though, it's a completely different story than a woman being stabbed multiple times on a, on a New York street. But in fact, there are not dozens of people watching others be harmed or be hurt but sometimes thousands or even millions. And and this has come up again and again with not just law enforcement officers, but psychologists saying, how could people just sit there and watch as though this were entertainment? And that in order to trace the roots of that phenomenon, we have to take it all the way back to Kitty Genovese. Now, the thing I would mention is that the story of Kitty Genovese is not exactly what maybe a lot of people were told. It turns out there weren't quite as many people um, hearing her distress as was originally thought. There was a a little bit of hyperbole going on in that original story. Um, But that's exactly the kind of context and nuance that we're trying to present. And we know that our listeners are smart enough and concerned enough to, to be entertained. Celeste Headley there. She and Masood Olufani are hosts of a brand new TV show. It's called Retro Report on PBS, and it premieres tonight at 9 on GPB-TV. Well, it strikes me that Retro Report is also a little bit, it's the story of journalism in some ways, that how stories are told and what is chosen to be told, what gets covered and, and what is taken for fact. Yeah, that's right. It's funny. Our executive producer, Kira Darnton, likes to say that if journalism is the first draft of history, Retro Report aims to be the second draft. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, the benefit that we have of not having to cover the minutiae and details of breaking news, um, the fact that we're bringing in history allows us to be way more rigorous about the facts, fact-checking and sourcing and making sure everything that's on there is accurate. And what that comes down to in terms of choosing stories is that if we can't verify a story, it's not going to be on Retro Report. Well, history in general is having a pop culture moment right now. We think of revisionist history or the 1619 Project, the Memory Palace, these podcasts, very, very popular. Why do you think this thirst for perspective is so big right now? You know, I, I, for me, I think it's, uh, there has been this kind of ongoing, gradual uh, sense of trying to reckon with our historical uh, past. And I think uh, in America, we've done a very good job of having, practicing a kind of selective uh, memory, right? The things that are, that are troubling, that conflict with the uh, romanticized narrative that we try to tell ourselves and one another, um, I think a, a lot of that is being debunked. And, the golden uh, age of yesteryear exactly, idea. Exactly, exactly. And I think that kind, that, that's, a, that's a national problem, but it's also an individual problem, right? That gets practiced in families, in relationships, where 
we don't talk about those parts of our relationships that are troubling and difficult because we uh, think it's easier just to pretend like those things didn't happen. But what happens? How do those relationships? How do those relationships suffer as a result of of that kind of um, refusal to engage uh, around those troubling issues? So. Um, you know, it, it's it's such an important thing to be able to look back with a kind of clear-eyed vision, um, a humility, a commitment to integrity and honesty, and to confront those things with courage, uh, because it'll help us move forward in a more positive, uh, in a more unified light. Yeah. Well, there are so many surprises for me here. Capping off every episode exactly. is now it all makes sense. Andy Borowitz, <laughs> yeah. who's just the wonderfully wry author of the Borowitz Report yeah. uh, from the the New Yorker, he said that he thinks of this as as retro report as schoolhouse rock for grownups. Mm. So, how does that humor fit into these investigations of stories with deep cultural resonance? You know, to try to pretend like all of these issues were not did not involve humor when they were first happening, <laughs> to try to pretend like even when the Pentagon Papers are being released or, or during the, even during tragic events like the Kenny Genovese murder, th- that there were not jokes cracked, um, that that's not how human beings handle, uh, you know, very, very difficult pain and, and struggle, that would be ridiculous, right? I mean, this is just an acknowledgement from PBS that uh, humor is as important in our understanding of events. It, humor is as important in helping us put things in context as our intellect is. Celeste Headley, thank you so much. A pleasure to speak with you. Same. Thank you. Masood Olufani, thank you very much for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Celeste Headley and Masood Olufani, they're hosts of the new TV show Retro Report on PBS. It premieres tonight at nine on GPB. You'll find a link to watch a trailer of the show at gpbnews.org. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Thursday of this week, I will be interviewing Malcolm Gladwell, whose five best-selling books have introduced concepts like the tipping point, connectors, stickiness, and the 10,000-hour principle to millions of readers. The latter proposes that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is what made the Beatles, Bill Gates, and tennis pro Andre Agassi the best in their fields. My guest, David Epstein, challenged Gladwell's idea in a book called The Sports Gene, igniting what one magazine writer called a nerd fight of gladiatorial proportions. While Epstein goes further, in his most recent book, Range, he pulls together research showing that fortune favors generalists, dabblers, late bloomers, and zigzaggers, like Duke Ellington, who was passionate about baseball and painting before composing hundreds of complex, multi-instrumental pieces like this one, Sea Jam Blues, without ever learning to write conventional notes. Range uses Ellington, J.K. Rowling, and Nobel Prize-winning scientists to illustrate the long-term advantages of breadth of knowledge over depth. I spoke with David Epstein last summer when he was in Atlanta and asked him to compare the hyper-specialized practice of Tiger Woods to the more meandering approach of Roger Federer. Well, so Tiger Woods, as as probably most people have sort of absorbed the gist of his story, is the the hyper-specialization. Father gives him a putter at seven months old. You know, by, by two years old, he's on national television demonstrating his swing. Three years old, his father starts to media train him. Um, you know, and he starts saying, like, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. Fast forward to 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. 
Roger Federer, clearly just as esteemed as an adult, but played a wide variety of sports as a kid. Um, his mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. He started picking up wrestling, swimming, volleyball, badminton, soccer, basketball, a little rugby, skateboarding, swimming, a couple others. Um, and even when his coaches wanted to bump him up to a higher level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends. And... Uh, he delayed specializing in tennis until years after his peers, and that turns out to be absolutely the norm. If you look at studies of athletes who go on to become elite, they have what scientists call a sampling period, where they play a wide variety of sports, they gain these broad general skills that scaffold later knowledge, they learn about their own interests and abilities, and systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. So I use those stories to to sort of serve as an analogy and jumping off point for other domains. So this sampling period is the norm. But we do, do we just hear the Mozart, you know, uh, Tiger Woods stories, the child prodigy, prodigies, because we like them? That's right. That's right. And they're dramatic. So, in fact, um, the Mozart and Tiger stories, we've actually been telling those a little bit wrong. So we tell them as these sort of father-manufactured stories. But as Tiger said, his father never asked him to play. It was always him asking his father. And Mozart, I went through some old letters about Mozart, and you can see musicians coming over to and Mozart asking to play with his father and the musicians, and his father saying, like, go away, nobody's giving you any lessons in violin. And one day he starts crying, and another musician says, well, I'll go play with him in the other room. Next thing you know, they hear the second violin part coming from the other room. And I remember the letter says specifically, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist he could also play the first violin. <laughs> so in those two cases, the fathers were actually responding to these incredible and very unusual displays of early interest and prowess. And in fact, the best way to have a chance for that, even though it's incredibly rare, is to have a sampling period and see if something sort of uh, lights the performer's fire. So you don't have to worry about trying to manufacture them because that's, that's not the way that those stories happen. And, and it's not even just sports and music, right? Like when Mark Zuckerberg at age 22 says young people are just smarter, that sticks in our mind. The research that just came out from MIT and the Census Bureau that says actually the average age of a founder of a blockbuster tech startup on the day of founding is 45 and a half, you know, that doesn't stick so much. This is why so many people must be gratified by reading your book who have spent their lives not quite knowing exactly what their specialty is in in this in this era when we have this notion of the necessity of hyper specialization. But a lot of points that you come across in this book and a lot of people you speak to talk about where that falls down hyper specialization. What's an example of that that we can all relate to? Well, so, for example, let's look at uh, medicine, because I think this is a consequential era where everyone is pushed to be a specialist, right? So we end up with um, doctors and medical scientists working off of what's called surrogate markers, which means now instead of having a view on the entire human organism, they have such a narrow view that they're only looking at like one part of the body and tweaking that and assuming that that will get the outcomes they want, you know, when you sort of zoom out. So, so there's some very famous blood pressure drugs, for example, that lower blood pressure, and then people die of heart attack and stroke at the exact same rates just with lower blood pressure, because mm. we're only focused on these surrogate markers. And this has reached such proportions that some of the studies I cite in range, for example, um, are one that shows you are less, if you have a, have a serious heart problem and are checked into a hospital, 
you are less likely to die if you're checked in on the dates of a national cardiology conference when the, the, the most esteemed specialists are away because you're less likely to get a procedure that they do constantly but that is ineffective and, and dangerous. And so w one of the cardiologists who wrote the editorial accompanying this study said, you know, my colleagues and I used to joke that our conference would be the safest place to have a heart problem. And this study really turns that on its head. That is just chilling in its own way. But this is also, this has been a focus in education that, you know, help a kid find their passion and zero in on it. But you give a lot of examples of how different ways to approach, let's say, mathematics, Japanese math teaching versus American math teaching. Can you help illuminate that for us? Yeah, so uh, American math teaching ends up, you know, e even even when teachers have really good intentions, ends up imparting uh, what cognitive psychologists call using procedures knowledge. Essentially, that's a kind of knowledge where you learn how to how to execute certain algorithms. Essentially, when when you see a certain type of problem, and so the way it works in class is usually you'll give students problem a problem of a certain type. You know, problem type A A A A A. They learn how to execute the procedures. B B B B B. They learn how to execute the procedures, and so on. In a Japanese classroom, they're more focused on what's called making connections knowledge. They also have some using procedures knowledge for sure, but whereas that's the entirety of, of math learning in a lot of American classrooms, the making connections knowledge will often use one problem that, that brings together a large number of different concepts. So if you go into a Japanese classroom, one entire wall will be a blackboard. There'll be one problem for the class. The kids have these name magnets where they, can, they stick their name by something they want to try in the problem. The class follows that, and maybe it's a dead end, and they come back and try other approaches. And, and part of the idea is to try all these different approaches, which forces you to start connecting ideas. And the Japanese actually have a word for this kind of writing on the blackboard that, that tracks the intellectual journey a across the class. It's called Bansho. And that kind of teaching, instead of teaching how to execute procedures, it teaches how to match a type of strategy to the structure of the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of skill you need when you're going to face problems you haven't seen before, which, of course, is where it's actually practically important. Which is almost the opposite of the idea of teaching to the test. In other words, teaching so you'll be successful on a test. And one of the, you have a number of studies because there's a, a whole chapter on education here and more on secondary education. But one of the most fascinating things was this Air Force Academy oh, study of, of particular professors teaching Air Force cadets, I guess it was, calculus. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that study knocked me out for a number of reasons. One, because it was such a unique, like you could never recreate this experiment, you know, just in a lab. So the Air Force Academy gets a freshman class in, you know, hundreds or a thousand students every year, and they all have to take a sequence of three math courses in order, calculus one, calculus two, and then more advanced class. And they are randomly assigned to professors for Calculus 1, then re-randomized for Calculus 2, and then re-randomized again. So you have this incredible setup to see, like, what is really the influence of different professors. So these researchers who studied it tracked thousands of students and a hundred different professors over a decade. And what they found was that the professors who were the best at, um, at, at facilitating overachievement in Calculus 1, in their own Calculus 1, so students did better than the characteristics they came in with would suggest, those students then went on to systematically underperform in the follow-on courses. So the professor who was, whose students did the sixth best overall in his Calculus 1, his students ranked him the seventh best overall, you know, on their student evaluations. They then finished dead last in how they performed in, in the next 
um, courses. And it turns out that that's because the way to get the best contemporaneous achievement in your own class is to teach a narrow curriculum full of using procedures knowledge that gives people this these sort of quick ways to do well on the test, but does not teach them these broader conceptual models that they then need when they're, they're facing new problems um, going forward. And, and this is sort of one of the themes of range, right? It's the ways to get the fastest short-term improvement in front of your eyes often undermines your long-term development. Right. Ease of learning, getting through something is not necessarily the best way to learn. No. In fact, uh, difficulty is not a sign that you're not learning, but but ease is. Hmm. My guest is David Epstein. He's the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. But you, Okay, so you just talked about one of the big underpinnings of the book, but another is the long-range calculation, how this mm-hmm. plays out over time. And the other that comes across to me is that, of course, people gravitate towards something that they feel successful or competent yeah. at. But how does that lead to a kind of complacency? Yeah, so in in, in some cases, um, if when people are training in something and it, and it feels easy, basically um, they rest in, um, you know, I was talking to the economist Russ Roberts, and he called this a, a, a hammock of con- competence. I called it a rut, and he said it's a hammock because you get so comfortable. And, and it turns out that basically we just sort of settle into um, comfortable levels of competence, and the way to get off of that is to do something totally different. And, and again, not to make too many analogies to physical training, but it's like, if you lift the same weights the same number of times every day at the gym, you'll get good at that, and that will become comfortable. But that will not cause your body to physiologically adapt and make changes, which is what you really want. You want an adaptation and change, because as you do the same thing, your body and your mind reconfigure to make that thing convenient and easier. So you have to be constantly changing what you're doing if you want to have continual improvement. But let, let's look at what this means for the way that we structure our whole education system in the United yeah. States, this idea of, especially for secondary education, that you choose what you want to pursue and then you make your way through yeah. that. One of the things that we find over and over again in the book is that that is not necessarily good. To have this sampling period is much more beneficial. So what does this mean for for, you know, higher education in the U.S.? Yeah, so there was an economist uh, whose work I write about who asks exactly that question, and he, he looks at a natural experiment outside of the U.S., but very relevant, where he sees in, in the higher ed systems in England and Scotland, they're very similar, except in England, the students have to specialize, like, in their mid-teen years because they have to pick what, what like, professional course they're going to apply to. And in Scotland, they can keep sampling much longer, like, more like in the U.S. And he wanted to know who wins this trade-off the earlier late specializers. And what he found was that the early specializers do in fact jump out to an income lead because they get more domain-specific skills. But the later specializers sample more and pick better match quality. That's the economist term for your degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work you do. So their growth rates when they get into the work world are much faster. So they quickly erase that income gap. And then the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, even though they have much more disincentive from doing so. So essentially, they were picking so early that they were making more wrong choices. And the return to that sampling period turned out to be higher than the return to getting more domain-specific skills because you pick a better match. Well, fit and match are a big part of the way that we assess progress. How mm-hmm. does one find one's fit or match? That's a that's a good question. And so and this is where it gets not quite as, you know, straightforward as do 10,000 hours in the first thing that comes along. And so one of the the studies that really resonated with me was this one called the Dark Horse Project that approached that. It was how do people find work that 
that they find fulfilling. And the, the reason it's called the Dark Horse Project is because these two Harvard researchers, when they would sort of bring people in for introductory interviews, these people would all say, like, well, don't tell anybody to do what I did because I started in this other thing and it turned out I didn't really like that. And so then I sort of zigzagged and, and you know, left some other thing and finally kind of like created my own job. But so I'm a total, you know, oddball. Mm. And about 90% of them would come in and say that, like, don't tell people to do what I did because I, I came out of nowhere. And so they called it the Dark Horse Project because all these people viewed themselves as dark horses. And their common trait was instead of having a focus on their 10 or 20 year plan, which like you can't predict anyway, um, they had a focus on short term planning where instead of looking around and saying, here's who's younger than me and has more than me, they'd say, here are my interests and skills today. Here are the things I want to learn. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one, and maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And so they go forward with this intention of learning something about themselves from each of their experiences and continually zigzagging until they triangulate good match quality. Well, it's interesting because since I've been talking with people about this book, a lot of them have said, you know, I've always been jealous of people who know from a young age that they know what they want. And and everybody no. thinks of themselves as that, as that dark horse. You know, I didn't quite know. I'm not really the one to follow. Is, is this about personality or is this about the way that we are steered into finding direction, do you think? Uh, both, I think, actually. So, and an important thing to keep in mind with the personality aspect is, and there's a reason why I quote, you know, the 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 one of the co-founders of Nike saying he feels sorry for people who know what they want to do from the time <laughs> they're, they're sophomores in high school. Um, because something to keep in mind is called the end of history illusion. This is a psychological finding that, that we all realize that we have changed a lot in the past. Our personality traits, our values, our interests, everything based on our experiences. And then we underestimate how much we will change in the future. And we do this at every time point of life. And the fastest time of personality change in your entire life, although it changes throughout your life, is from 18 to your late 20s. And so if people are picking, you know, they may find the right fit if they're if they're making a solid choice in that period, but but probably not because they're in the position of trying to choose for a person they don't yet know um, and in a world they can't yet conceive. And so if they make the right choice, it's it's probably pretty much luck. Is there an ideal age to hyper-focus? It, it's hard to say. So if you look at um, sports, the period of winnowing down, so the sampling period often lasts at least through the early teen years. A lot of times the sampling starts getting like winnowed away in the mid-teen years, like 15, 16. But then if you look at like the German soccer players, who a study of them, who the ones who went on to win the World Cup, they were still doing more outside stuff until they were 22 and more unstructured play. So it's also about unstructured play. In other areas of the world, I don't think there is a perfect time because the work world changes so quickly now and we know our personality changes that I think this quest for match quality is, is more of a lifelong quest than ever, actually. We're going to take a quick break and be back with David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And we'll leave you with music from Django Reinhardt, one of those he highlights as a zigzagger who eventually found his way. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and my guest is David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He's a man of broad knowledge himself. He studied astronomy and geology in college before becoming the youngest senior writer for Sports Illustrated and writing the best-selling book, The Sports Gene. 
Well, that book set him on the path to range, which defies the pick-a-skill-and-drill-down philosophy, which has predominated conventional thinking and sold a lot of books. For this one, Epstein talked to experts and gathered a bunch of research on the underestimated and overlooked approach of people with broad, not-so-specialized knowledge, especially in the information age. Well, tell us a little bit about that. How did you go from this, the sports gene and your famous debates with Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> Right. So after the sports gene, whereas, as Malcolm would say, he had to introduce me at a panel recently. And he said, this is David Epstein, who devoted several pages of his first book to attacking my work. <laughs> um, and so the first time we met was um, in 2014 at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And we were asked to debate um, athletic development. And this is on YouTube, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. And in trying to anticipate what he was going to uh, argue you know, I knew he had to argue for early specialization of athletes. And so I went and looked at, you know, as a science writer at Sports Illustrated, I went and looked at all the data and saw that, in fact, everywhere scientists look pretty much in almost every sport, athletes have this so-called sampling period where they gain a breadth of general skills. They learn about their interests and abilities and systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. And when we came off stage, he sort of said, you know, we, what you got me on was 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 that thing. Um, and we became running buddies after that. Talk about it on our own time. And I sort of filed it away in my head. And then maybe almost two years later, I was invited to talk to people who had been given scholarships by the Pat Tillman Foundation, military veterans, to aid career changing. And I talked about late specialization a little bit. And it was they were so enthusiastic about it that 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 conversation with Malcolm came back to my head. And I sort of thought, you know, maybe sports is just the analogy for the wider work world here. Ah, so you started looking at a lot of different bits of research about how nimble minds work with a breadth of experience. And that was well, maybe it was well suited for industrial jobs and economy to be super yeah. drilled down. And there's an yeah. example here of a study in Soviet Kyrgyzstan. This is by a researcher named Alexander Luria. A yeah. village is completely untouched or relatively untouched by the progress that was going on in the world around them. What did that reveal about specialization? Yeah, so Luria used the, the socialist revolution as, as this natural experiment where he could go to areas that had been sort of brought into modern work where they had to do collective farming and, and people started having to have these more managerial jobs instead of just their normal hands-on jobs, whereas other um, of these remote farmers were still very much in in this concrete style of life where they had to live like by their own hands. And what he found was that the more modern work that an individual had been exposed to, the higher their capacity for abstract thought, essentially. And so, say you'd give shapes, like to some of these, the, the what he called the pre-modern farmers. You give them a square with a solid line, a square with a dotted line, and, and, and a bunch of other shapes, and you which go together. They would never pair those two squares together, because they would say, for example, one villager named Alieva would say, well, one is um, a map and the other one is a watch, of course, right? They'd see no commonality. Whereas the people who'd been exposed to modernity who need to do some abstract thought because they need to transfer knowledge across domains and think about people working who are not themselves, um, even if they didn't know the names of the shapes, they could do grouping like that. And what's really interesting about it is we, the more that we've had to do self-directed problem solving in modern work, the the better we've gotten at abstract thought. And that's shown up in these IQ tests. This is what's called the Flynn effect. If you look at abstract IQ tests, there's a rise of about three points per decade over the 20th century. And specifically on the most abstract tests, 
the ones that we're supposed to change the least because they have nothing to do with the stuff you learn in school. Hmm. And so our adaptation to modern work has led us to have these these broader thinking uh, strategies that allow us to move our knowledge between jobs and domains, which which makes us sort of uniquely flexible. So yeah, flexibility is the key here, that if you, you talked about the hammock of competency or the rut, what I read from this book is that many people tend to decorate their ruts you know so they're staying in they're they're moving in there for a while and yeah. and holding their place there what does that mean for our culture at large you know this idea of the siloization of knowledge one of the scientists you speak to calls it the system of parallel trenches yeah yeah, yeah. i mean let's so that i love that that was arturo casadevall who's you know one of the most prominent scientists in the world who's trying to despecialize the training of scientists we have this thing called the replication crisis right now where like a huge amount of famous science is turning out not to be true and that's in in part because um, scientists get into these very specialized tracks before they've even learned how to do scientific thinking and by the way i explain this in range because i have a master's degree in environmental science and I did the same thing, so I now realize I have published research that is almost certainly false. Huh, because, because you only were just... as an investigative journalist l- reporting about how poor science is done that I say, like, wait a minute, this is very familiar. Huh. You know, I did this. So I have a master's degree that I'm quite sure is based on um, research that isn't true, unfortunately. O- outside of science, I mean, so so an example of a disaster, right, where, where there's siloization. So an SEC regulator when he found out I was writing about specialization, actually contacted me to make sure I knew that it had these interesting roles in the financial crisis. One of those was, in the wake of the crisis, the government, to try to keep people in their homes, um, started these programs where they would say, to a, if, the, if the people met certain qualifications like they were employed, the government would reach out to the bank and say, let this person keep their home, lower, lower their mortgage rate, and we'll pay you part of the difference that they're not paying. And so you won't get you know as much as you would have otherwise, but you need you want something right and so this agreement is made and so these banks then start one arm of the bank that deals with the mortgages then starts lowering those individuals payments right and so the the individuals start paying less another arm of the same bank realizes that those people are now paying less and forecloses on their home and so this this program that was meant to keep people in their homes perversely got them out of them more quickly because the banks were so siloed that they had no idea what one or another were doing. It leads to these perverse results when nobody is keeping an eye on the big picture. Right. So you can have a lot of information, but it's not circulated from one side to the next. And it can get worse over time. And you illustrate this with a series of decisions made about launching the space shuttle, the space shuttle Challenger, yeah. which did blow up. I mean, these are very smart engineers, lot yeah of protocols what went wrong yeah so the challenger in the columbia after that th- those those disasters were such cultural carbon copies that the investigation board of columbia said that Le- nasa is not a learning organization because they repeated the same mistake and and to make a long story short what nasa did was they had gotten so entrenched in these certain types of procedures um, that required very specific types of quantitative arguments, which had worked beautifully in many cases. But then the night before Challenger, they're going to have these unusually cool temperatures, and they get into this situation they haven't experienced before. And one of the engineers from the rocket booster contractor, Morton Thiokol, is saying, look, we don't have the data to say what's going to happen, but here are these photographs that I've taken that I think tell a story about how these O-rings that seal joints in the boosters are going to fail as it gets cooler. And they kept asking him, 
well, quantify it. Like, what's the data? How can you quantify it? He says, I can't. I'm telling you, these pictures tell a story. We don't have data. We have to use reason. And because they had such a formal quantitative culture, which in many ways had served them very well, they basically refused to accept any other kind of evidence and, and struck that evidence from the record. And that's exactly what happened the next day. And so their inflexibility from deviating from their normal procedures, even in a an instance that clearly deviated from their experience, uh, led to tragedy twice. Are there cases, however, when that hyper-specialization is really helpful? I mean, you know, you Absolutely. make the point that chess champs, uh, for example, they're, they're relying on old patterns in their head. Absolutely. But wh- what are some other places where that kind of level of drilling down is beneficial? And I should say, so the chess, chess grandmasters, their advantage is pattern recognition, but that's also what makes that task so easy to automate. Because uh, uh, that's why, that's why Watson knows how to play chess so well. Right. So that, that's why, as one of the oncologists told me, is, you know, there's a reason why Watson destroyed at Jeopardy and has been like, a, you know, a disaster in cancer research because we already know the answers to Jeopardy. And this gets to this, this framework that I set up early in range that the psychologist Robin Hogarth called kind versus wicked learning environments. Kind learning environments are these ones that are based on pattern recognition and where all the information is clear and next steps are clear. And those are areas where it does make a lot of sense to specialize. They're also areas that tend to be easier to automate. The wicked learning environments are where you're, not, you're maybe not even sure where you should go next and some of the information is hidden and you may not always get perfectly accurate feedback. And those are the cases where where breadth of knowledge, um, you know, really like galvanizes achievement. And the more uncertain the area gets, the more important those people with breadth are. My guest is David Epstein. His new book, Range, champions the generalists. You are not by any means casting judgment on people who are specialists. But your book has already been highlighted and picked up by a number of management and productivity and, you know, do your job better kind of sites Mm. and podcasts. But you also mentioned the personal advantages. So what beyond career advancement are upsides for for generalist humans? There's a quote that stuck with me from the work of someone named Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find work that fits them well and then change that over the course of their career as they change and as the world changes. She has this quote that we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is that there are all these career gurus and like personality quiz, industrial complex or whatever that that suggests to you that you can just introspect and learn who you are, that there's a true self of you just waiting to be fulfilled. Hmm. But in fact, that's contradicted by a ton of research that suggests our insight into ourselves is constrained by our roster of experiences. And that the only way to get that insight that helps you match well is by doing stuff and then reflecting, by acting and then thinking instead of the reverse. And and so that's how you triangulate a better fit. And it turns out that when people do that, it's not that they set out to become a generalist, a lot of the people in the book. It's that they're searching out good match quality and that they realize that since they've sort of traversed these different areas, they can take knowledge that was ordinary in one domain and then apply it in this other place where it's extraordinary, which is exactly... By the way, what happened to me, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided to become a writer for sure. Really? Not realizing my very ordinary science skills would be totally extraordinary at a sports magazine. Well, tell me about that transition for you. I mean, that that's part of the thing about changing one's career when you've been going down a certain path. There's, there's difficulty. There's mm-hmm. vulnerability. Mm-hmm. How do you explore that? Yeah. And, and, and again, to go to Hermine Ibarra's work, she talks about working identity. And I think the reason that's an important phrase to keep in mind is because I think sometimes we have this idea of just sort of taking a flying leap, you know, and that's you either do that or, or you don't. But in fact, 
our work is part of our identity, in some cases a very important part of our identity, and identity does not change overnight. And so the successful changers, she finds, do this sort of um, escalating experimentation, where this, for somehow they'll get a keyhole view into some new interest or new area, and they'll then maybe they'll take a class or talk to a couple more people or explore it a little bit more, and then it becomes this sort of widening passion until they get to the point where they say, like, I actually have to make a change while their friends are all telling them, no, 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 just keep it as a hobby. You don't want to get behind. Hmm. Um, and so it's this slow process because it involves identity change. And, and as she finds, it necessarily involves this period where you have a foot in each world that is very unsettling, no matter how well it works out. How have you done that? How do you dabble or put one little foot into the other another world? Yeah, so I actually keep, so when I was a competitive runner in college, I used to keep a, a goal book, right? So here's my training, here's my running goal, very black and white. And I transitioned that to my professional life and found it actually doesn't work well at all because goals in the wider world are not like measured on a stopwatch as easily as that. Um, and so now I keep something more like when I was a grad student that I call my book of experiments, where I'll, I'll almost have a hypothesis of what do I want to learn? What interests do I want to explore? You know, what do I think I might be good at? And then I'll find a way to engage that and come back and see, okay, what was unexpected about what I liked about that or what I contributed or, or, or how much I didn't like it? And I just I do that constantly, and it forces me to do a lot of reflection, which is which is one of the hallmarks of so-called self-regulatory learners, who are people who... One, they get off of learning plateaus because they're constantly reflecting on their own learning, and they also end up assessing their own strengths and weaknesses like much more uh, similarly to how their their bosses and uh, and outside people do. You're making me think of uh, of finding the right fit in a job and acting your way into it a little bit like you know finding a mate. There's this idea that there's the one person that's out yeah, there that you've totally. got to figure out right now. How how do they compare for you? No, I mean, completely. I think if, if we thought of careers the way we thought of dating, we would never pressure people to settle down so quickly, mm -hmm. right? Because just as for some people, very early specialization works out. For some people, marrying their high school sweetheart m may well work out. But for most people, as they gain more understanding of themselves and of the world, and they essentially, you know, take data by, by dating, um, having married their high school sweetheart looks like m maybe it was not such a good idea in retrospect. And and the way mathematicians have modeled optimal dating, essentially, is quite similar to some of the models of, of optimal search for work match quality. Uh -huh. All right. So how do we do this? How do we continue to dabble? Any ideas or experiences that you would recommend? You know, take a class, take up a sport, hobby? Personally, I would start this your own little book of experiments because that will force you to be having the experiments in the first place and reflecting. In the writing of this book, I got stuck with some of the structuring. Like, there's a lot of information I was having trouble organizing. So to kind of get out of my rut, I took an online fiction writing class for beginners. And in that class, like, nothing I've done before matters. You know, having the best-selling book before doesn't matter at all. Back to the beginning. And one of the exercises is writing with no dialogue. Suddenly I go back through the whole manuscript of range and start stripping tons of quotes, realizing I had just been uh, reflexively relying on quotes to do explanation that I should have done more clearly in writing. And now I'm, I'm even more committed to you know, not having to come to a crisis point to, to keep doing those experiments, but making sure I'm getting a little uncomfortable more regularly. Well, David Epstein, we learned from your book that even Julius Caesar looked at his life in the shadow <laughs> of Alexander the Great statue and thought, oh, I've been a failure. I've done nothing. I mean, a lot of people are anxious about not quite settling into the right fit. So what would you tell them? 
the single best advice I could give based on all this research is don't feel behind and focus on the opportunities and the things you want to learn right in front of you. You don't, you don't even know who you're going to be. Again, end of history illusion. We all underestimate how much we will change. You certainly don't know what the world's going to be. So it's no use making these, you know, ironclad 10- and 20-year plans. This is what the, the investor Paul Graham calls, says, in computer science, we call that premature optimization <laughs> because you're making a goal before you really, like, know what you should be doing or what the area you're working in is like. So just work forward from promising opportunities instead of worrying about that long-term plan. That is David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And by the way, he and Malcolm Gladwell have talked over their differences of the meandering versus the 10,000 hours approach publicly. I'll ask Gladwell about that and a lot more when I speak with him at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech this Thursday. The event is presented by Acapella Books. Details and tickets at acapellabooks.com. We are well beyond the tipping point and right out of time for today. We'll leave you with more of Duke Ellington, an exquisite generalist himself. This is Portrait of Wellman Bro. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott, back tomorrow with more of On Second Thought.